This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Before we begin, don't forget you can get unlimited digital access to the Times and the Sunday Times for just £1 a month for three months when you subscribe. The offer ends on the 1st of July and you can find a link to sign up in your Red Box email. To make sure you get that, it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. And if the World Cup is your thing, subscribe to the Game Daily Podcast from the Times. But we're not here to talk about football, which is good because it wouldn't take me very long to exhaust my knowledge. We're here to talk politics. Joining me this week, commentator Rachel Shabby on Tories turning on business. James McGrawy, former Lib Dem band, now director of Open Britain on the politics of protest. But first, Anthony Wells from YouGov on what the public really thinks about Brexit. The vast majority of people think the government are handling Brexit badly. They think it'll be bad for the economy and bad for jobs. They don't trust either party to handle it, don't think it was the right thing to do, and yet they still want it to go ahead. Anthony, I spent quite a lot of time poring over the the uh, output of uh, YouGov for Charts of the Day and that sort of thing in the red box email. When it was two years, last week, it was two years since we, we took that uh, decision to leave the EU, I went back and looked, and actually one of the, not much has moved in public sentiment. You know, the two political parties are roughly where they were, how people would vote, was it a good or the right or wrong decisions, much the same as where it was. The, one of the big movers has been people who think the government is handling it badly. There was a point about a year ago, a bit it more, was... where it was almost... Um, um, the, the, the handling it well was ahead. Now, two-thirds of people think it's handling badly. Only one-fifth of people think it's being handled well. And yet, as you say, the public still seems to think that the government should plough on. They just want it done better. Yeah, the spike was... It was just... It was January afterwards when Theresa May gave that speech and just before they actually handed in agenda, um, the Article 50 notification, people actually thought it was going well. And since then, it's just... All downhill, worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Until now, you've got two thirds and a majority of Remainers and a majority of Leavers all think they're making a mess of it. And um, uh, very few people think they'll actually get a deal in time. Very few people think she'll get the deal she wants. A majority still wanted to go ahead. Obviously, lots of people don't, but it's still that's that. Essentially, you've got forty percent or so of people who still think it's a good thing, and then you've got a minority of Remainers who think, ooh. It's not really good. I think it'll be horribly bad, in fact. But people voted for it, so we've got to do it. One of the things that struck me was, if you look back, particularly from the election, when there was a big drop after the election in the 
proportion of people who thought the government was handling it well. It does fluctuate quite a lot between sort of 20 and 30%. And it seems like, and I know pollsters get cross if you start joining, uh, linking events to spikes, but where, where things did happen, where she uh, got the transition deal in the autumn, when she made big, when the Prime Minister's made big speeches, the Lancaster House speech and the um, Mansion House speech, the, the, and appeared to be setting a course. The public do seem to notice. There does seem to be some movement. Yeah, it, when it's whenever it looks like there's some progress and the government are actually doing things, then it spikes up. When it looks like they're just drifting slowly and arguing with each other, each time it falls, it falls lower than the last the previous trough. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, you're director of Open Britain. You worked on the Remain campaign. You've been involved in people's vote, and we'll come on to talk about the the, the march of the weekend. But uh, so you're you're trying to sort of engineer public opinion to turn against Brexit. What happened? What? what how do you feel every time you look at it? Public opinion doesn't appear to be moving, even though the public seems to think the government's making a hash of it. Well, I don't think it's moved substantially. But if there has been any movement, it has been towards the the, the Remain side, which I actually think is extraordinary when you look at the fact that for the last two years you've had the front bench positions of the government and the official opposition saying exactly the same thing: Brexit's going to happen, and then they're squabbling about the finer points of a customs arrangement that will go over the heads of most people who don't follow this every day. So I think there's a sense of inevitability out there. And part of the jobs of campaigns like mine is to say, look, if this doesn't match up to the Brexit you were promised, and I think that's probably why you have so many people think it's been handled badly, because remember the Brexit they were promised was the exact same benefits of membership and none of the perceived drawbacks. We can have our cake and eat it. And all we've been left with is Boris Johnson with a few crumbs around his mouth. And Rachel, what what role do you think the opposition should be playing in this? Because there doesn't appear to be a sort of reverse bounce if if you know what i mean the, the labor don't while the government's handling of it is doing very badly labor don't appear to be benefiting in any way uh, from that if anything jeremy corbyn's personal wages have gone down i don't think anyone's benefiting from brexit i thought i think brexit has broken politics um, and it's broken it across parliament i do i do think this polling is is interesting in that it seems to suggest which in a weird way, I mean, it's probably a good thing that most people still believe in a democratic process, that they think something that we voted for and were promised should happen should still happen. Now, the problem, of course, is that the thing that should happen is is a terrible thing. It has broken pro- politics. It can't be delivered along the lines that it was promised. So then how do you reconcile these two things, which is that we have a democratic process that we, we would like to stick to as a country and, and we should stick to as a country, but all the democratic process is over a thing that is essentially... A, a dot. That's the question. How do you reconcile those two things? And my fear is that the thing that co- the, the causes of Brexit, the things that led us to Brexit, been so long in the making, you know, hostility to the EU, hostility to immigration, um, austerity, which left people feeling anxious and wanting to stick two fingers up to the establishment. All these things, decades in the making, and are going to take decades to unpack. And my fear is that the things that we need to do to undo the desire for Brexit is going to take longer than the time we have to undo Brexit. I'll take your point, Rachel, but I mean, there are 17 million people who, who don't think it was a dud. They did vote for it, you know, with all the evidence that was laid before them, all the warnings and project fear and, and whatever else. And in a way, part of the white reason that people are saying that politics is broken is still because of these campaigns and arguments being made that this is a terrible idea, we shouldn't have done it. And we need to try and find a way of proving to you that you were wrong. I don't think proving to people that you were wrong is a, is a very good operational premise. And I don't, I don't think, you know, since Brexit, 
we're coming to learn more about what it would look like. So we're, so it's in the couple of years since we've had the vote that we're having more and more information on the table on what actually is possible and what isn't possible. And we've come against, you know, the, the unstoppable force of Brexit has come up against the immovable reality of the Irish border, for instance, or, you know, wanting to have all the benefits of the single market, but without actually being in the single market. So it's, it's this contradiction of what people want versus what is realistically possible possible that we're now trying to navigate. And Anthony, do you poll the details like that, customs union versus single market versus Norway plus Canada minus? Are the public engaged enough to... love to get that phone call. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm just going through a channel. (laughs) I've called you on your landline, man. Robbing the floor, anything. (laughs) Yeah, if if you ask more questions, they give you answers because they're trying to be helpful, even if they really don't have any strong opinions or particularly know what the subject is you're talking about. So ultimately, what Brexit supporters want from Brexit is something they would recognise as a real honest Brexit where we actually do have control of our laws and things like that and all the ins and outs of nitty gritties of how much money on the you're going to get from the side of the bus and you know whether you've got precise controls of these trade laws or not no one understands and no one will really judge it on that they're just going to judge it on that whole package on whether this looks like something that is a real Brexit and looks like something that's So to what extent is this a failure of spin by the government, do you think? Because I remember thinking in June, July 2016 that probably Remainer as Prime Minister made more sense because they could bring the party and the country together. Actually, I think the opposite is probably true, that if you had had a Brexiteer who got up every morning telling people how well it was going, what a good idea it was, the sunlit uplands are coming, could actually, unlike the Prime Minister, suggest that this was all going to be worth it. That Actually, that spin job of persuading the, the country that this was this was all going to work out right. Because people don't follow all the details. As long as you just keep telling them this is the Brexit that you voted for, then public opinion might be different. Well, that's not necessarily a Remainer or, or Lever thing. Theresa May's not a particularly charismatic politician in that sense anyway. Yeah. But it would take a hell of a spin operation to drag that out for two years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sunny up it's all just over there. It's almost, it's almost, almost the spin doctor's fault. Almost there. Yeah. <laughs> it's only what you've got. So, um, James, as a, as a former spin doctor, and then, you know, you're still spinning now, what um, <laughs> what do you think could happen, given that, that, you know, to some extent we are now still on course to leave in some form in March 2019? The clock is ticking, as several people keep saying. What, what could you do from a the Mainer's point of view, to try and shift the public opinion, to try and... Cause, because for, for ever since that vote, people have been saying, oh, it's going to come to a head when Article 50 is triggered, or it's going to come to a head when there was a general election. It's going to get... And it hasn't come to a head. Public opinion doesn't seem to have shifted. What, what for you, is the thing that might? Well, it's, it's, I mean, it is going to come to a head when the deal's brought back from Europe and then goes to goes to Parliament, because, as you say, we're, we're, otherwise we'll be out in, in, less than a year's, in less than a year's time. And public opinion and parliamentary opinion are symbiotic. They can, they can lead each other. You know, public opinion, people going and seeing their MPs, which is a lot of what we'll be doing over the summer, emailing, writing, will change their opinion. MPs do listen to their constituents. But at the same time, public opinion can be led. Otherwise, there'd be very little point in being, being in politics. And I'm sure Anthony will correct me if I'm wrong, but the three arguments that we find get people nodding along, be they Remainers or Leavers, are firstly the one that Rachel mentioned earlier, which was new facts coming to light since the referendum. Nobody on the Leave side was telling people they'd have to pay a £40 billion divorce bill for now in return. The second is that promises that were made 
during the referendum campaign, most infamously about the NHS, simply aren't going to be kept. And again, there's polling out this week that shows most people think the Brexit dividend is a load of cobblers, mainly because it is. And the third <laughs> is the, uh, that the government are making a total fist of these negotiations and are only going to deliver us a bad deal and that politics at the moment, again, as Rachel said, are showing a series of people who can't agree. They can't, the two main parties are divided, but you have the spectre of Theresa May having to divide her cabinet into ever smaller groups of people <laughs> just to try and get an agreement on the customs. It is a bit like primary school children who can't stop squabbling. So <laughs> yeah, like, you go over there <laughs> and play with the sand <laughs> and you go over there and do the painting. Um, your kid, I, I don't want to see until you've all made up. <laughs> Rachel, what should Jeremy Corbyn be doing in all this? Because um, to some extent, if this starts becoming a story about how this isn't the Brexit that people voted for, that if only Brexit could have been delivered properly by a Tory government, what, how can Jeremy Corbyn get in a position to sort of capitalise on that? Because he's in a pickle as well, trying to please leave Labour seats and remain Labour seats and... What does he need to be doing sort of through all of it, all of this? Yeah, the Labour Party is in a, is a quandary as, as for precisely the reasons you say that it's that it's uh, voters are split amongst Leave and Remain and, and also inside Parliament. You know, it has it has uh, at least three different positions inside uh, <laughs> its own uh, PLP. So I think. But actually, I think we're kind of underestimating what the Labour Party has already done. And that's probably because we want to see much more impact than has been the case. But, you know, I think Labour sort of triangulating, if you like, or, you know, this kind of fudge um, that carried it through the election did carry it through the election. And had it done anything else, it probably would have got less seats, which would mean that we'd have more people for a hard Brexit in Parliament. So that was a good thing. The fudge was a good thing. Uh, since that time, uh, the party's been able to change things when it comes to the transition period. It's been able to change things when it comes to having a meaningful vote, although it didn't actually win that, um, the, 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 the concrete, substantial meaningful vote in the end, um, because the Tory rebels were, as it turned out, mostly, you know, mostly paper rebels, or some of them rebel, but not enough. And it also got has changed its position on the on the customs union. So I feel like this sort of slowly, slowly position is a good position. But I also feel like there is a point at which that's not going to be enough. In my opinion, there's no way that when the deal comes back in the autumn or perhaps the early part of next year, that Corbyn can troop through the lobbies to back a quotes unquote Tory Brexit, which is how his opponents will dub it, and get away with that. You know, that will properly rile a very large section of his support. But doesn't he just do what opposition is always doing, just vote against the government because this is a government deal and we don't, well, we wouldn't have started from here and we wouldn't do that. I mean, I suppose the risk with that is, does he want, if there's enough Tory rebels as well, to potentially tip the country off a cliff or whatever the warnings would be from the other side? You know, Theresa May has got a deal. At what point does sort of national responsibility kick in and does that end up swaying opinions as well. We should, I mean, I would argue that national responsibility would be to vote the other way, to vote against the deal if you think it's in the national interest rather than be threatened with us. it's a deal or no deal, do you want to be shot in the leg or shot in the head, which is what the government sort of are putting to the Tory rebels at the moment. I think tactically the best thing for Labour to do is to vote against the Brexit deal but lose the Brexit to go ahead. Because then, if it's horrible, they can say, Very we oppose this, noble. and it was all the tourists. <laughs> Just enough. But, of course, they don't get the bad press of having blocked Brexit and ignored the public, because it's still gone ahead. Yeah, but then what? That's... But then what? It goes ahead, and then let's say there's an election and Labour gets into government, and then it's held responsible for all the all the, all the the things that will happen Oh, next. you can blame things on your predecessors for very, very long time. <laughs> you can, as we see when <laughs> Theresa May tries to hold Jeremy Corbyn responsible for things that Tony Blair did, uh, which I'm not sure Jeremy Corbyn ever voted in favour. 
for. Let's move on because um, I'm sure I'm sure we'll come back to the exciting topic of Brexit um, at some point. I would point out, uh, Anthony, in a, earlier in a poll by you go earlier this year. Um, on whether or not Brexit was boring, only ten percent of Leavers thought it was very interesting. <laughs> oh. um, so, uh, and they are responsible for it. Right, let's move on. Uh, this is James McGorry talking about the politics of protest. It's been a week of protests, from the hand solo resignation about Heathrow, where was the foreign secretary, to festival disruption at Labour Live, to over a hundred thousand people taking to the streets of London demanding a people's vote on the final Brexit deal. The question is, will any of them work? Well, before we begin, I mean, I think a small round of applause for Han Solo resignation. Thank you, that thank was, you. Uh, so I was quite pleased that. was that. very oh, good. So it's Greg Hans resigning over Heathrow. Boris Johnson going AWOL in Afghanistan, so he could miss the vote. So just explain to us what happened on Saturday and why you think it was significant. So uh, I work for Open Britain and we're one of the organisers of the People's Vote campaign and the People's Vote uh, March. And I think it was significant. You know, we had a, a well over 100,000 people on the streets of London. You don't get protests at that scale very much. It was, someone told me it was over seven years since the last demo of that of that scale and that was organised by the trade union movement. So to get people from all over the country taken to the streets with a pretty simple premise, they don't think Brexit is going well. They don't think promises are going to be kept. They think we've got more information and they think the only democratic way to deal with the issue, which is what we were discussing with Rachel earlier, is to put it back to the people. There is very little faith in our political class to be able to deliver in the national interest and then agree on the national interest. And we think the only way out of the bind is to go back to the people with the deal itself. What practical difference do you think 100,000 people on the streets makes? Well, I mean, two- apart from sort of <laughs> making, and actually, I've had a few emails from Bedbox readers who said they were there and they quite enjoyed being with like-minded people and being off social media and not being shouted yeah, down yeah. by people who disagree <laughs> with them and meeting like-minded Refreshing people. Change, yeah. yeah, it was you know, and all, all that's very nice and it makes you sort of feel better than other people who agree with you. But a hundred thousand people is not, you know, I suspect there weren't many people there who voted leave who now voted Remain or many people who saw the march go past and think, oh, no, you are right, actually. I do support a second referendum. Oh, no, there's a few from the so-called Remainer Now uh, movement of people who voted leave. I met, uh, I met a few. Look, I don't think, you know, one march is not going to uh, change a, change an entire direction of a country, but a prolonged campaign and a summer of action might. But I think probably the most important thing that happened was it did get massive cut through and quite rightly uh, because it was a really significant demonstration of people power but when we've been talking before about a lot of people think about the inevitability of Brexit oh there's nothing that I can really do well there is something you can do now you can get involved with this campaign that's able to put hun- over 100,000 people on the streets of London it's now going to take part in a summer of action www.peoples-vote.co.uk yeah we'll cut that out oh damn <laughs> lovely uh, but you know you, you, can, you, can, you can make the difference you know there is nothing inevitable about Brexit it is not it's a big deal. It's not. It's not a done deal. And if just a few people who weren't able to get to the march, watching on TV, thought, you know what, I will write to my MP. I will join my local, my local group. Then that is a big sign for our campaign over the summer. Now, um, just winding the clock back a bit, because in your previous life as a special advisor to Nick Clegg, yes. you, you sat in Whitehall while students marched down uh, the streets outside. <laughs> quite, a few, quite a few. Quite a lot of them. Quite a lot of them. In fact, they seem to be on an almost weekly basis, uh, <laughs> throwing fire extinguishers out of windows and setting fire to refugees of Nick Clegg and all that sort of stuff. Um, when you're sitting in government at that point, you just think, well, we're going to carry on regardless. You know, it's not very good for us. 
the Lib Dem bounce back is just around the corner, so we will <laughs> basically ignore the protests going on outside. Well, Isn't you, that what happens in government? You definitely don't ign- ignore them. I mean, when they're literally outside your office, you can be damn sure that people have a meeting and uh, it is widely discussed. I mean, the amount of times... And then that, it's ignored. Well, <laughs> the amount of times we discussed, you know, should we do something different here? But ultimately, it wasn't really a decision within our gift unless we could rustle up a load of money, unpick a load of mortgage. We made our bed. But look at other protests in that era that were arguably more successful. The bedroom tax was binned off after a number of uh, protests. And the one I remember was, and it wasn't necessarily people on the streets, but there was a very, very good protest sort of online and uh, two MPs about the forests Forest, sell-off. Yeah, yeah. It was the one thing my mum rang in uh, to to me about and said, you need to sort this right out. Um, but, they, you know, they worked. Some do, some some don't. But the idea that they're ignored is just, is just not the case. You, you simply cannot ignore a load of people who feel very strongly about something who are right in, you know, literally outside your your front door. Rachel, what do you make of this, the sort of the rise of protest? Jeremy Corbyn spent his whole life protesting from the outside, and now suddenly he's found himself being protested against by Labour people at Labour Live a couple of weeks ago. How do you think that is for him? I think it's an interesting question of what you do. So for for, for the first time since I can remember, we have uh, a Labour leadership that that is in tangent or in, in symbiosis in a relationship with the grassroots and comes from a protest background. So the, the two things are aligned in a potentially really powerful way. And I think that is a really interesting question. What do you do? Um, how do you pressure a left-wing uh, leadership that is also part of the left-wing movement? And I think Actually, you know, I, I, I think that it's, it's good to have a hundred thousand people on the streets, uh, protesting and calling for a second referendum or a referendum, sorry, it's people's a referendum, vote. people, referendum on the vote, <laughs> with, on the deal, which is very different. But I, I wonder, so my thing would be choose your allies. So if you're going to criticize, if you're going to hold the left to account, then you need to do that from the left. So it doesn't, it doesn't work if you're doing it from the center. It doesn't work if you're the sort of people who are already, um, don't especially like Corbyn and don't want him to be leader. And all you can do is say, where's Jeremy Corbyn? Why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he do that? Instead of recognizing the things that he has already achieved and coming from the same um, position. So this is why I find like in terms of Brexit, the, 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 the protest that I find a lot more interesting and potentially a lot more productive and powerful is the protest that's coming from the left. So if Momentum, for instance, have just started up a petition to have a conversation about Brexit at Labour conference, um, another Europe is possible, another grouping that is doing that. If you have a Labour party that says it wants to be more de- democratic and more accountable to its grassroots, that's probably a much more interesting and impactful way of, of doing it than, you know, the, the centre-right who are critical of him and are filtering their opposition to Brexit through that criticism of him. So, Anthony, do, from from your sort of perspective, do do the process and this sort of thing move public opinion that way? I mean, the, the a million no. people on the streets with the Iraq war didn't seem to make <laughs> that to me. Could have softened that a touch, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I, actually... I'm, I've generally been spent my life being extremely cynical towards protest marches and thinking you've gone out, you've had a nice day out, you've you know met up with some mates, but you've made yourself feel good and you've done something, but you probably haven't achieved anything at all. It makes no difference to public opinion. I'm not sure it makes even that much difference to the publicity you get because it gets coverage when it's something that you know, the people's vote thing. They knew it's they, the 
journalists already knew this was a movement that had proper support and there's serious political backers there and there's a lot of public support for it anyway. So it got coverage. If it was somebody who actually the journalists knew, actually no one agrees with them and this is just a bunch of cranks, it wouldn't have got much coverage. And well, like the far-right march yeah, on the same exactly. day. Exactly. You constantly see people who are um, complaining, oh, we've got 10,000 people out and the journal and the the journalists ignored it because the journalists knew those 10,000 only represented themselves. The only good, actually, James has just made the only good case I've actually heard. Thank you very much. (laughs) It does force politicians to actually consider it in a way that, you know, when you've got some, lots of people marching outside and throwing fire hydrants off your office, they will at least have a meeting and consider it, probably, because just psychologically it makes you think, oh, crikey, we better look again at this. It's not really about that, though, is it? I mean, protest is is much more about um, energising your own people and building a sort of grassroots thing. And and that's why when it comes to Brexit, I think, you know, there is time to be spent and there are conversations to be had um, about austerity, about immigration, about all these kind of things. Um, and and that's the kind of base that needs to be animated I could, I agree with rather than the people who are still in the same consensus politics and want things to continue as normal. Normal, but with Brexit stop, that's not going to get us anywhere. We will find out in due course just how successful the march was. Yeah, am I still in work? Are you still in work? Has Brexit been stopped? <laughs> the first thought I shall have is Brexit isn't stopped. It's well, the march didn't work. In a moment, in a moment, we'll talk about uh, what's going on in the Tory Party. We'll be back after this short break. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box Politics Podcast and Times. I'm Matt Chorley, joined in the studio by Anthony Wells, James McGorry, and this is Rachel Shabby. Nothing conveys how far the Tories have, thanks to Brexit, lost the plot. So much as this self-styled party of business now being so openly sneery and savaging of business. If the Tories can't even credibly maintain this pretense of being the party of business, then what exactly are they for? They might as well just pack it up and call it a day. 
So I've had this sort of running theme in Red Box a while um, of just saying in capitals, this is not normal. Things keep happening <laughs> yeah. and it's not the biggest story of the day. Yeah. But it's worth pointing out that this is not normal. We saw it with Boris Johnson this week. We're having loads of Tory MPs calling for the Tory Foreign Secretary to resign <laughs> is not normal. Um, and the Tory party saying in Boris Johnson's case, F business, and uh, Jeremy Hunt saying it was inappropriate for, yeah. for Airbus to speak out sort of uh, senior Tories being in a sort of arms race to see who could be rudest about business. This is not normal. <laughs> no, I think that's a very a very useful um, signpost and I'm sure you'll be bringing that out f- frequently in the weeks and months ahead. But yeah, I mean, I think you know, for me, the Tory party has always been the nasty party despite sort of spin and attempts to prove otherwise. But now it is quite categorically the dysfunctional toxic party that has lost the plot. I mean, it is so so broken by Brexit. It just seems to be incapable of doing anything other than this sort of infighting and the squabbling and, you know, covert leadership battles, which, you know, is obviously detracting from the minor detail of actually having to govern, you know, in your own time, guys, don't worry about us, we'll be fine. Um, it does, it does seem incredibly reckless and irresponsible, but I also think they can't quite help it. Like they can't help but be profoundly dysfunctional at the moment. They just cannot get it together. And this whole thing with business is just extraordinary. I mean, this party that for years has been telling us that they're the natural party of government and also the natural party of business. Now, obviously, again, both m- massive, um, spin efforts, right? Branding efforts that, you know, you can argue about whether you fall for, but they can't even recreate their own spin at the moment. That's the thing. They can't even propagate their own pretense at credibility over business because of these things that they're saying, extraordinary things to be saying to the business community in the UK. James, what do you make of it? From a, if we sort of uh, try to park the Brexit issues, just to be able to talk about Brexit <laughs> nonstop for half an hour. But given that you were in coalition with the Tories, and you know, being the party of business as their thing was so long, what have you made of what is happening within the Tory party and their politics? Well, it's a pretty extraordinary wrestle, in my view, for the for, for the future of the Conservative Party. You know, there are still, and Greg Clark's been sort of desperately trying to mop up uh, over the last couple of days to deal with the fall the fallout from Hunt and Hunt and Johnson. There are still those Tories for whom that is their raison d'être. They got into uh, politics to be the party of, of business and to speak up for the markets and all that kind of thing. Sort of small C conservatives, if you like. They're now, in my view, involved in a death spiral with um, the kind of, and I'm sorry to bring up Brexit, but the, but the kind of people for whom Brexit colours everything else, and that's either their route to the leadership or their route to a kind of Albion that they want to impose on the country that, in my opinion, is backwards looking and never existed. And when you've, the really dangerous bit is when you've got people like Hunt, who you probably would have said instinctively is in the former category, multi-millionaire businessman himself, remember, and he is now openly courting on the flagship Sunday programmes of this country, the other side of this, I think it shows which side of the sort of double-headed beast of the Tory party is winning at the moment. And there was a big debate before the uh, EU referendum about David Cameron or whoever came in after David Cameron having to put the party back together after the campaign. It actually feels like that hasn't happened. And the, the, all of this sort of shenanigans that's going on at the moment isn't thinking about, well, what happens after Brexit? What happens after Theresa May? What happens when they turn around and they discover that business has abandoned them? 
and they discover that the half the country thinks they've done something they didn't want, and the other half thinks they've made a hash of it. That seems like a big risk for the Tory party. It's a huge risk, but I don't think it's doable. I don't think with the best will in the world, there is some sort of Christ-like saviour who can descend from the sky and anoint and, and sort of heal all the divisions within the Tory party. It's amazing that both major parties are completely divided on a whole range of issues at the moment, a lot of which are ideological. And the two groups that are winning, and I speak as a, you know, a self-serving centrist here, that the far left, have got a grip on the Labour Party and the far right have got a grip on the Conservative Party and that's a pretty dangerous place for our politics and it's leaving a lot of people in the middle with the Lib Dems struggling a bit for cut through to fight to, to feel just, to, I will just pick you up on the uh, understatement of struggling a bit uh, for cut through <laughs> yeah old spin doctoring habits die hard what uh, is it about centrism that just isn't engaging people I can't figure it out for the life of me well it's because the, the people on either side peddle easy answers you know your life will be made better by Brexit <laughs> And your lot, or your life will be made better by renationalising the removal services of this nation, or whatever it is that we're going to do next week. You, you know, know renationalisation of of, uh, of um, railways and energy companies is, is the one is the one thing that cuts across Labour and Conservative voters all want it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not denying the, I'm not denying these things are popular, <laughs> but I, I really don't think that the problems, the acute problems facing this country about the challenges of globalisation, about left behind communities, are we've uh, renationalised the uh, energy companies. And that's that's exactly the problem, expense. isn't it? That's exactly what we get back to before about you not being the best advocates for Remain because you are fundamentally locked into um, a status quo position about politics, which has caused so much True, economic hardship. True, but I do have the courage. But I do have the courage the to make place. those arguments, and the leadership of the Labour Party haven't had the courage. You've well, got to be. Well, you've look, got to get in the ring. Uh, you know, the I leadership spe- of the Labour Party is making credible arguments as it happens with business. They are now engaged in conversations. They're making with arguments saying- in favour of Brexit. You can't tell me that the Labour leadership have done anything over the last. Two years, other than back the Tories and a pretty hard vision of Brexit, they've I'm had ca- to be dragged kicking I'm and ca- screaming to uh, a customs union. They're not in favour of even in being in the single market. I mean, I'm, I'm approaching this from a slightly, slightly different point, which is that your approach to Brexit is very much keeping an economic status quo, and that is precisely the, one of the causes of Brexit. So, so when the left, when the left wing of, of the of the Labour Party, when the Labour leadership goes to business and says to business, do you know what? We are going to raise corporation tax all the way back to what it was in 2010 before Cameron and the and coalition slashed it. When we are going to do that, and we are going to deliver, but we are going to deliver a soft Brexit, and we are going to invest in infrastructure, and we are going to expand internet, and we are going to up skill the workforce actually business says to them do you know what yeah we like that we do think this is going to be a better proposition right let me bring you it i feel like we've gone um, <laughs> full circle there Adam. um let's go i think maybe what it has illustrated is um nobody really knows where any of the parties are the whole poly- what the one thing that brexit has done i mean my attempt to try and ban brexit on this podcast have gone completely out the window <laughs> is, uh, is this ep- episode um it's it's sort of exploded politics so much that if you've got the Labour Party try to outflunk the Tories on defence, while the Tory party is trying to, or parts of it, try to appear anti-business. Does the public really know what the hell is going on in politics? No, of course they don't. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not particularly... They, Brexit is, you know, good reason to ban Brexit from here because lots of people are bored of it, lots of people aren't paying attention to it. Because it's sort of expanded and has taken over the whole of politics and pushed out almost every other thing from being discussed... Um, um, People who aren't obsessed with Brexit have tuned out a bit. So that's part of the get on with it. If you can just get on with it so we can talk about something else and start discussing something that's not in Brexit. 
<laughs> well, one promise I will make, and unlike certain politicians I will keep, is we won't talk about Brexit on next week's podcast. <laughs> so uh, if you have tuned out, you won't hear this, but uh, <laughs> if you are here but was about to tune out, then tune in next week because we'll be talking about something completely different. Um, we, I'm afraid we've run out of our time. Uh, my f- huge thanks uh, to my guest, Rachel Shabby, James McCoy, and Anthony Well, Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get the you know, podcast from and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.